Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Patrick Deneen, a Notre Dame University political science professor, influential public intellectual, and best-selling author. His latest book, Regime Change, Towards a Post-Liberal Future, which builds on his highly influential 2018 book, Why Liberalism Failed, has already generated a ton of attention and debate. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, which is described as a, quote, bold plan for replacing the liberal assumptions that he believes is at the heart of modern society's many challenges. Patrick, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much, Sean. I'm really delighted to be with you. The new book has been described as something of a sequel to your highly influential book from 2018, which received critical praise from many different quarters, including former U.S. President Barack Obama. Talk a bit about the interrelationship between the two books. How does it build on why liberalism failed? What are you aiming to achieve in the latest book? So, yeah, this book is published now five years after Why Liberalism Failed. And it attempts, I think, I can't say as it succeeds, but it certainly attempts to address one of the constant questions that I was getting over the those past five years, which is, okay, so if it's the case that liberalism has failed or that liberalism is an unsustainable project, what what is the alternative? What what else is there? And so this book is is an effort to answer that question in a way that I'm I'm sure you know many people will find unsatisfactory or implausible. But which what I really attempt to do is to draw on a very long-standing, very ancient and rich tradition of thinking about, in particular, how one builds a kind of good society in which the two constitutive parties of of every of any political society the many and the few the kind of demos and the elites are mutually improving each other are making each other in some senses better and that's really the the kind of project now if that doesn't sound like post liberalism as such fair enough but it begins with a premise that liberalism has been a a project from the outset that has sought to elevate a certain kind of elite that at its heart is contrary to and really seeks to thwart the flourishing, ultimately the flourishing of ordinary sort of the sort of the demos, the masses, the many. And and that's that's the premise of the book. And so it really is an effort to say to move beyond the liberal order that we see today. We need a different kind of a both a ruling class that will help develop a different kind of a demos. 
Uh, let's stay on your criticism of liberalism for a minute. Uh, core to your argument and those who belong to your intellectual movement is that the purported protections of liberalism have not sustained themselves, that the guarantees of tolerance broadly defined for differing perspectives on morality and sexuality and virtue have not found protection as supposedly guaranteed in a basic liberal framework. Instead, those who oppose, for lack of a better term, a social conservative worldview have used their positions of power in mainstream institutions, including but not limited to government, to effectively marginalize and even, even at times target those with views that they oppose. And in that sense, the promise of liberalism has proven to be a failure. Let me ask a two-part question. First, when do you think the left gave up its commitment to liberalism and pluralism? And second, what has been the consequences for those like you who don't subscribe to prevailing views about morality, sexuality, and all the rest? Well, I guess the, you know, to, to the first question, the left gave up its commitments to liberalism as, as you describe it. And let me take a step back. I actually don't know that those commitments were actually ever really real. In other words, I think that the liberal, the commit, the stated commitments to a society of toleration and live as live as let live and so forth was was really most fundamentally a kind of tool of replacing one way, one way of life, one worldview, one regime, to use the term that I use in the book, to replace one regime with another regime. And that the what we think of as what maybe some people think of as the golden age of liberal toleration, and I'd like to know exactly when that was, but at any rate, what whatever that that time was, was actually a, more of a segue than a than a permanent state. It was more of a transition from one regime to another regime, and and you can in some ways literally see this in the kind of the transformation. The example I would use is the transformation of universities, which is always you know so instructive since it's kind of this the, the point of the spear of what a society's commitments are, and that you go from institutions that were formed in various religious traditions in the main, you know, almost almost at least in the United States, almost entirely formed. To be, in some senses, extensions of churches or extensions of faith traditions to form people in those faith traditions. In other words, that had a kind of substantive view of what the good was, what a good curriculum looked like, what the appropriate professor, right? Literally, the person who professes the faith, who that per, who those people would be, what the student's body should look like, and so forth. You go from that to, you know, roughly beginning in the post-World War II period, even a little bit earlier, a kind of moment of this transition of what we might think of as the liberal golden age of academic freedom and free speech, and people can believe what they want to believe and say what they want to say, the main aim of which was to disassemble the predecessor condition, was to put aside that older tradition that had had a set of substantive commitments and substantive beliefs, and to say, okay, we're no longer going to have any of those, and no one can claim those anymore because that's now a suppression of academic freedom. But notice that what has transpired is its replacement with a new faith system, a new belief system that has all of the, the same earmarks of that which it replaced, right? You have to have a certain kind of faculty. We now actually now have increasing numbers of schools that are requiring basically doctrinal commitments, you know, statements of, of faith that I will be faithful to the DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion commitments of this institution. We have now hiring that takes place based on these faith commitments. Students are admitted based on their commitments to these faith commitments. The curriculum is now shaped by these faith commitments. 
So I so to, those of us in this kind of I guess post liberal worldview, I think we we really feel ourselves as having been you know shown it, it's been shown to be or proven that the case that we had been making all along that liberalism was not a kind of neutral valueless you know system that had no particular point of view was always false that it had a set of commitments and those have now kind of come out in full force and the it's a kind of it's a, it's a kind of nostalgia in a way of those who think well we can just go back to the period of toleration and kind of mutual mutual indifference of worldviews because that's never a stable position you mentioned in your first answer patrick the relationship between impossible tension um, between the elites and the broader populace, it leads to the question, in your mind, how much of the problem with liberalism is inherent to its core ideas and values? And how much of it is that it's dependent on a society comprised of virtuous individuals and institution, and that modern society has come to spend down its moral and spiritual capital? Maybe to put differently, is the problem liberalism or is the problem us? I actually don't see those as in some ways separate questions because us is going to be a reflection of the of the dominant political order. And this is I mean, this is, of course, this was the argument of, of my previous book, which is that every political order has a set of predominant commitments, even liberalism, which many people would have claimed or have claimed, again, is has no dominant understanding of what constitutes the human good. But in fact, which shapes us, inexorably shapes human beings in the kind of image and likeness that it imagines what we should be and how we should be. Now, how we should be in a liberal order are people that are liberated from any ascribed understanding of that which constitutes the good. And to the greatest extent possible, free ourselves from the kinds of, let's say, institutions and practices that in a previous regime were designed to cultivate certain kinds of certain kinds of human beings certain kinds of human character we you know for lack of a better word i would call it virtue right a more classical or christian understanding of what virtue is and think about the thick network of institutions that have to exist beginning of course with the family and the networks of families of a neighborhood and a community and churches and civic life and political life and a national life and a global order maybe more broadly but all of those institutions and practices that develop those virtues, those come to be redescribed as institutions of oppression of our liberty, of our personal liberty. Those, those come to be under a liberal order. Those are necessarily obstacles to the, to the fulfillment of my liberty and my vision of how I want to lead my life. And so it's not just a matter of indifference of whether or not those institutions exist and are strong. They have to be disassembled. And maybe they're reassembled or redescribed or re-under, you know, considered in a new way. And a good example, again, would be a modern university, which is disassembled in its old form and then it's reconstituted under the new regime. But notice really what the what the argument is, is that the result is going to be precisely the creation of and the formation of human beings, human types that do not have that kind of well of, you know, what what you described as the kind of the well of certain kinds of virtues that allow a putatively liberal order to flourish. The more we become the kinds of humans that liberalism seeks to make us, the less well liberalism will work because the less we're going to have the kinds of people that are going to be willing to engage in civic dialogue, 
right? They're going to have the kinds of manners and the kinds of characters that allow for a kind of, you know, civil, decent political life that have that are motivated by forms of self-sacrifice that make us more than just sort of market actors that maximize our individual utility that are likely to cultivate us as citizens as opposed to consumers we could just keep going down the list but the kind of human being that liberalism produces actually makes liberalism itself unworkable building on that answer a chief argument in the book is that the American public isn't getting the politics it wants. That is to say, the political system has systematically served up political options that fail to align with the broad political preferences of the majority of American voters. What explains this disconnect in your view? And what do those who talk about polarization in Washington get wrong? One of the more interesting political charts that uh, was getting a lot of circulation after the 2016 election. You may know it if, if you want to throw it up on the, <laughs> I don't know, on the website or something. It was this four quadrant chart of political preferences lined, aligned with sort of liberal to conservative views on the social domain and liberal to conservative views in the economic domain. Now, the words liberal and conservative in the economic domain are kind of confusing because I think probably in Canada, liberal means what we would think of as conservative. So maybe we should describe it as libertarian versus more interventionist. Yes. And in the United States, at the very least, in the United States, our party system and our media system and our education system, and we could say the system as a whole, is designed to produce electoral electoral results that always ensure that one side of the libertarian spectrum will always be in charge. So it's either the economic side of the libertarian spectrum, which is when the Republicans win, or at least through the 1980s, or at least, well, until the, until the Trump election, that the libertarians in the economic domain win, or that the libertarians in the social domain win, which is the, which is the Democrats. The one of the most most fascinating things about that four-part chart is that there's almost no voter that exists in the purely libertarian part of the spectrum. In other words, there's like it's it has to be created in a laboratory in the basement of the Cato Institute. Uh, so, someone who someone who would vote libertarian in both the social and economic domain. So they're kind of a, a kind of marvelous and almost you have to think conspiratorially planned effort to advance libertarian views through party through parties that on the one hand claim that you know libertarianism in its fullest form can't win electorally and so we parse it up we parcel it out so that the republicans will 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 manage and advance the libertarian economic program while the progressives will advance the libertarian social program of you know kind of the sexual revolution unfolding and the most fascinating thing of all about this chart was how many voters are up in the quadrant, which we would, which we might describe as the anti-libertarian quadrant. It's the it's the quadrant of people who are socially more conservative and economically, we would say in America, economically more liberal or eco economically more in favor. We might describe as sort of social democracy, sort of like a a, a Christian Democrat, perhaps exactly in, in a European yeah. setting. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what the old left was or the social, you know, social Democrats were back in the day. It's, yeah, it's the beginnings of the European Union, post-World War II, and Conrad Adenauer and so forth. That part of the electoral sort of distribution is not represented. 
in the American electorate. It has no party. It, it's a substantial number of votes. And actually, if you look at the, the, the those quadrants from the 2016 election, that's what threw the election to Donald Trump, where the number of people who ended up voting for Trump from that column, because they identified that he was someone for all of what we know to be his many imperfections, was someone who maybe for the first time in their lives seemed to express, you know, kind of a non-liberal view in both the economic and the the kind of social domain that that various things he was signaling were sufficient to that part of the electorate that just typically didn't get a candidate and that i guess i would say that that's that, that is a to me a hallmark of somehow an electoral system or we could say a political system that is designed again we could say in here this is really part of the argument of my book is designed particularly through its leadership its elite to forestall or prevent that segment of the population that segment of the electorate from being able to have a considerable sway in terms of kind of policy in the direction of the political order that it's designed to make sure that those people never really get to have a substantial say when the dominant sort of the elites of each party want to ensure that the liberal orientation of the society is protected and advanced in all circumstances. An example of the small L liberal consensus cited in the book is the rise of so-called, quote, woke capitalism. Talk a bit about that, Patrick. How is the rise of a corporate politics of personal expression, including with respect to sexuality, itself an expression of elite consensus? Yeah, in some ways, I, I, I see the and part of the argument of the book is that the rise of what we now think of as the woke phenomenon, woke capitalism, is in fact a kind of really remarkable defense mechanism of exactly what I've been describing of this of the of this liberal elite that is actually a kind of a uniparty, which has functioned as an apparently divided or oppositional set of forces, but has actually governed largely as a uniparty, always advancing liberalism in one guise or another. Right, so that the ratchet only, only seems to move in one direction, either economically toward more neoliberal ends, or in the social domain toward you know the kind of constantly ongoing rolling outworking of the sexual revolution. And the rise of of woke capitalism kind of occurred almost simultaneous to the moment when that quadrant of the of the electorate actually began to have some some say. And so it is it, it is a remarkable kind of combination of of the kind of you could say the neoliberal capitalist ethos of everything can be sold, everything can be packaged, everything can be turned into a kind of market item, and that the ultimate market item indicating our personal freedom, our personal liberty, is a marketing of ourselves as as of ourselves as products, as ourselves things that can be in a sense processed that we are the ultimate we are the ultimate kind of consumer of ourselves and that we can package ourselves and remake ourselves as we wish so the you know wokeness is you know it's it's strange to me right now but not surprising that the right is increasing or at least a, a certain element of the right the kind of right liberal right is describing it as marxist i just don't think it's marxist at all they call it cultural marxism it's really kind of the ultimate sort of extreme of a kind of capitalist ethos of the of the you know thinking of ourselves as products that can be constantly reshaped, reformed, repackaged and made into whatever it is we wish for those things to be. 
So woke capitalism does seem to me that kind of the perfect marriage of what I sometimes you know call the, the two Johns, John Dewey and John Locke. It's the perfect marriage of the kind of sort of neoliberal economic and the kind of progressive, the socially progressive forces in our society. There's a case that you're own ideas represent something of a left-right synthesis. I, I read, for instance, you describe your intellectual mentor, Carrie McWilliams, as someone who, quote, wasn't easily definable by a left-right paradigm, unquote. How does post-liberalism, in your mind, draw on insights and ideas from the traditional class-based left and the old communitarian right? Well, yeah, that more or less perfectly describes what I see as the, and, and certainly my own intellectual formation, as the, the deeper, what I have always seen as the deeper synthesis between what has in some ways often been seen as separate. And part of the effort of this current book is to put those back together again, is to put together a class-based understanding and an analysis of our current political moment with what we might describe as a more traditional or traditionalist understanding of what the, what the kind of the consequences of that analysis are. So in other words, to in some ways to, to direct Marx in the direction that Marx should have gone in in some ways, which is Mar many of Marx's analyses of capitalism are really spot on. I mean, you know, the opening pages of the Communist Manifesto, I mean, a conservative can read those and think, wow, this is like the most powerful conservative critique of capitalism ever written because he describes exactly how capitalism operates to undo, to just liquefy all human relationships, all traditions, all customs, all places, right? Anything that sort of exists through time gets just you know, liquidated by by the the kind of dynamics of capitalism. Now, Marx then you know takes this analysis and says, what we need is a kind of revolutionary order that will overthrow you know the elite and put into place the you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, and all will be you know kind of perfect utopian society. But there's a there's a tradition which had a similar kind of critique of the market order taken to the extreme that it's been taken and argued that the answer and the, the solution in many ways was a kind of strong reassertion of the of the kinds of structures and practices of a more traditional society. That the only way in some ways to contain the way that the market would occupy all aspects of life was to preserve aspects of life through forms of association, forms of identity, forms of development of who we are that limit how we think of ourselves merely as, as sort of actors in the marketplace. And if you don't have those kinds of strong alternative understandings of, of yourself and your society and your order, the market will 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 inhabit every you know crevice and cranny of of a of a human psyche and of course human society. So the the kind of the class based critique and the critique of the market in particular really does lend itself to a kind of you know a kind of traditionalist set of understandings. And this this is the kind of tradition that you see. It was especially well well articulated in England around the time of the Industrial Revolution and shortly thereafter, Carlyle, among others. But I in the, in the book, I mentioned some passages from Burke that are really relevant, as well as um, Benjamin Disraeli, who was really among the first thinkers to understand what was going on. 
But maybe the figure above all that kind of looms just in the back of my mind in in, in this um, was a much more contemporary thinker, which was Christopher Lash, who, you know, a man of the left, who I think maybe understood these aspects of the implications of the critique, the left's critique of the market needing answers that came from the right. And, you know, Lash is somebody I think has rightfully been rediscovered, but really needs to be kind of a guiding light in how we think about our politics much more than he has been in recent years. The book talks about two big ideas that stand in contrast with the prevailing ones over our politics in general and conservatism in particular. The first is what you call aristopopulism, and the second is what you describe as common good conservatism. Can you talk a bit about these concepts, what they mean, how they differ from the status quo, and how they may relate to one another? Yeah. So Aristopopulism is a the title of one of the chapters. And it's it's inspired by one line of thinking about this, something I talk about quite a bit in the book, which is the idea of a mixed constitution or mixed regime that I've already mentioned. In other words, how does one form the various elements of society? How does one think about the relationship, especially of elites in a society, to the kind of populace, to the to the ordinary people in a way that the natural antipathy of those two doesn't devolve into kind of either a civil war or a kind of anarchy or tyranny or just you know kind of outright oppression and the, you know we're not the first people to live through a time when the divide between the elites and the many has been a political problem I and mean, it's a very old issue that you know for someone like me who teaches in this tra tradition you see it constantly it's constantly reappearing and there are two basic answers that one encounters in this tradition, both of which are described as the mixed the, the, the theory of the mixed constitution, but both of which approach this in a different way, or each of which approaches this in a different way. One of them, which is maybe more associated with the name of Machiavelli, argues that basically, in particular, the populist side of the equation needs to kind of be forceful against the in, sort of incursions and efforts of the elites to dominate them. It needs to be really kind of ardently forceful in resisting the domination of the elites. It, and, and especially because it's much easier for the elites to dominate the people than vice versa. The elites just have so many more tools, wealth, and you know, institutions and so forth. And so this this is a this is a theory of a kind of you could say it, it's one of the origins of the ideas of checks and balances that the many would check the power of the few, and it's the chapter in Aristopopulism where I talk about this being a kind of necessary mechanism, especially right now when I see the way I see things, the elites in our society really do possess most of the tools of you could say political power economic power, social power, the power of forming opinion, the media, the universities, the the NGOs, the, the bureaucracies. You could go down the list of all the various institutions that the left controls today or that the, the elite control today in particular, the liberal elite in particular. And that what's required is a kind of forceful push to say, if you don't change your ways, we will find ways to replace you. We will find so this is the origin of this idea of aristopopulism that only through a kind of forceful expression of populist power, electorally in particular, will the elites act more like aristocrats, 
Well, they act more like, in other words, aristocrats in the original sense of that word, meaning people of virtue, people who will behave and be more virtuous. The other approach to the idea of mixed constitution comes more from the Aristotelian and Thomistic tradition. And this is an argument not that the one side should contest forcefully against the other side, but that ideally there should be a kind of a mixing to the point of, in which the two start to become more like one, more like a single party in society, more like a, a, in which the you could say the interest of the one and the interest of the many begin to blend together. The that which is good for some people is also good for the many. Now, of course, that's a, always a complicated thing because they're always going to be countervailing interests in society. But in the Aristotelian view, the hope is that, and the the aim is that the good of the political order as a whole redounds ultimately also to the good of individuals within that order. And only a flourishing political order will, will lead to the flourishing of individuals within that order. So this is less a kind of internally divisive society and one in which the common good conceived now not as you know limited to just some set of people but rather one in which the good again the good of some also redounds to the good of all in that society and so common good conservatism is really an argument that a society that is able to be attentive to especially the the needs and requirements for flourishing of ordinary not elite, non-elite citizens, right? What's required for the flourishing of ordinary citizens in any given society? And the answer is not that everyone is going to be a finance banker in New York City, or everyone is going to be, you know, a, a globe trotter. You know, and again, if you spend much time, enough time in universities, that implicitly tends to be the answer in some ways. That if everyone could just become like us. You know, well-educated with a with a kind of something like an equivalent of an Ivy degree, then this will be the way that we can have a flourishing society. Rather, what goes into the flourishing of human life tends to be very ordinary things. Of course, you need a financial base, you need an economic base, but you also need the kind of institutions of civil society that allow for the flourishing of individuals. Of course, you need good families, and you just start there. How is how are our families doing in America or in the West today? In particular, how are families doing among the least among us? You know, in the in the rural parts of the country, in the in the you know in the working working class places of the country, they're not doing well at all. And what are the elites doing? Are they are they treating this as a kind of crisis? No, I mean it's, it's almost as if it doesn't exist because to talk about family would no longer be a, a liberal thing. Would no longer to be praising the individual initiative. Of the of the individuated monadic human being, so common good conservatism is really a way of saying that a society that fosters the kinds of institutions and practices and the development of virtues doesn't have to be one in which we eliminate the elite or we eliminate the ordinary people. It's one in which the basic requirements of flourishing are available, almost a kind of public utility to everyone. Everyone is able to flourish, regardless of whether or not you're in the elite class or whether you're just a kind of regular Joe or Joanna who, you know, is can lead a good and flourishing life without having to get the right kind of college degree. 
Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming you've been so generous with your time patrick i just want to put a few questions to you about how a post-liberal politics manifests itself in, in public policy before I wrap up with a big picture question about Canada. I should just say, though, in parentheses for listeners, the book sets out a number of different proposals and options with respect to a, a policy agenda informed by some of the ideas that uh, that we've been discussing, and we won't be able to cover all of them here. Perhaps that's a, even a greater reason to ultimately by the book. But I want to ask Patrick about the the welfare state. Libertarian politics has had something of an uneasy settlement with the welfare state, but your vision actually finds some common ground with the left on a greater role for the state with regards to income security, industrial policy, and other more interventionist policy prescriptions. Why don't you talk a bit about your vision of the state as set out in a post-liberal agenda. I think touching on something I said earlier about how one how one thinks about restraining and properly limiting the market forces in in life. This needs to be done not just in so for example family life shouldn't be run on market forces. I mean, you know, that'd be a disaster for family life. You know, kids, you know, you will love you if you earn your way to our love, you know, you have to you know, do this, that, and the other thing, and then, you know, I'll give you X amount of love credits for the day. But you know what? The, the, the market itself is prone to its own excesses. Every tool can only be used to the extent that that tool can produce the good and right outcomes it's designed to do. And once it, once it exceeds those or moves, you know, moves beyond what, what those, what, what that tool can and rightly should do, then one needs to think about how that tool is being misused. And I think this is true of the market. So people who criticize the market, such as myself, or are prone to criticize aspects of the market are often seen, you know, I'm constantly being accused of being a Marxist and leftist, socialist, and so forth. These are just silly and idiotic labels that, of course, are meant to scare people. I think it's it's entirely possible, you know, to believe it or not, it's entirely possible to be in favor of the tool of the market, which is a valuable and necessary tool, while recognizing that it has certain kinds of limits. And among those limits, I mean, one key of those limits that people have understood for a very long time is the very thing that animates right liberals, or what we call neoliberals, when they think about political power. Neoliberals, right liberals are very concerned about the abuse of political power. That political power, right, they'll be the first on the on the ramparts to say, you know, the state 
is a dangerous entity because it has so much power and it can just do what it wants and and remove our freedom. It can treat us in ways uh, that are undignified and inhuman. And yet when it comes to concentration of economic power, it's almost as if that doesn't exist. But of course, it's it's simply... You know, it's just obviously the case that economic concentration of power is a fact that comes about through markets. And, you know, good basic economics 101 will say, okay, you can't have monopolies because monopolies destroy the basic basic dynamics of, of a market economy. But there are ways you can have less than a monopoly and still have these titanic concentrations of power, which end up being as abusive, as potentially abusive, or at least comparably abusive to human beings and human dignity as it would be if it was held by public authority. And what's going to be the counterpoise to these kinds of dangers of concentration of economic power? Well, it's going to have to be political power. It's going to have to be public power. And this is where, again, the critiques of of the excesses of the market or the ways in which the market can lead to these these abusive kinds of relationships and, and activities, the way that this is described is that this is the government doing these interventions, the government. It's like this alien force landed from another planet and started doing these terrible things. Well, what is, you know, ideally, what is the government? The government is really represents us. It is the it is the way that the public concern, the public wheel is expressed. Now, is it always good? Is it always you know, agile? And does it do it in a good way? Of course not. But that's not to say, well, let's, let's just disassemble it or let's have no exercise of public authority. And this is a way in which it seems to me conservatism as a, again, as a liberal project has been an abysmal failure because the claim that any exercise of public authority over market forces in order to trim or to tame or to rightly order the market, that these are inherently illegitimate has meant that we've had at least two, if not three generations of potential thinking about the ways that this needs to be done, that that's been entirely undeveloped. So I think just to begin with, it's not that on the one hand, the welfare state is illegitimate or that the welfare state is always a good thing. It's that we have to we have to really begin to think. And I think here, you know, a new generation of conservatives are beginning to think about the ways that, you know, broad-based middle-class programs are actually a good thing. They provide the kind of decent order and security that ordinary people need to be, be able to lead the kinds of lives in which they can expect to flourish, right? And, and you know, to have still to have people out there on the notional right saying that that the aim is to disassemble social security and to have no to have no medical care, no system of medical care, that this would be the good and right outcome of of efforts on the so-called right. This seems to me just you know not only just irresponsible, it seems to me inhuman. Probably your most radical idea is a massive expansion of the House of Representatives. Talk about that. How would it change American politics in a direction that's more amenable to your political vision? Yeah, it's funny. I think I put that one first, which, you know, probably people thought, you know, this is the craziest thing I've ever read. The funny thing is, is, you know, I again, I'm a student of political philosophy and I'm a student of American political thought, among other things. This was one of the most hotly debated and regarded as one of the most important topics at the time of the American founding. So all the people who think they're all about the American founding and you know how important the American founding is, no one ever talks about this. But the size of the House of Representatives was regarded as one of the most important topics that was dealt with at the time of the debates over the American Constitution because it touches on a really key question, which is 
what what is representation? What does it mean to be represented? Right. So if we are, if in a in, if if in a political order such as ours, and we live in large, very large societies, right, very massive scale, huge numbers of people. I think it's fair to say that there's no, in no real way, are we represented in our national political order? I mean, we're maybe represented by certain kinds of organizations. Right? So, if you care about the environment, you probably are represented by you know, Sierra Club. If you care about abortion, you're probably represented, you know, by you know, either Planned Parenthood or you know, pro-life group. You know, in other words, that the people that we are electing. In what way, in the size of the districts that we have, or even the states that we have, in what way can they represent us? So this was actually a topic of very hot debate and discussion at the time of the American founding. It's one of the most interesting debates because, among other things, some of the most interesting of the Federalist Papers are written on this topic, in which the Federalists, in which the founders thought that having a small House of Representatives was the key to the success of the Constitution because they didn't want too much representation. They actually wanted representatives that would be relatively disconnected from the people that they would represent. In other words, would do what they would do since they constituted a kind of elite class. So that part of the book, in which I'm making these proposals, my what I was thinking was how how do you get more ordinary views sort of filtering up. How do you get the views of you know people who just don't have the access that you have to have to get your views aired in Washington DC? And it was the viewpoint of those who opposed the the constitution at the time or at least were critical of the constitution that they said okay we would be more likely to accept this if the house of representatives would always be relatively linked to the size of the population so that districts would have to, you know, districts wouldn't get past a certain size. Now, there was originally a proposal, one of the original amendments, what became the Bill of Rights of the United States, one of those original amendments was actually to limit the size of a district to about 50,000 people. And if you do the math, that would mean our House of Representatives would be, I think it was like something in the order of close to 10,000 people. In the book, I propose Actually, I re revived a proposal that was made by George Will, by a good, you know, that back then, an old-fashioned conservative who suggested we should expand the House of Representatives to 1,000 people, which would be a lot smaller than what that original amendment would have, would have led to, to be the case. But the thinking was, how do we get a more, a, a greater connection between, again, people where they are? up to the national scale how do we get more you know sort of more of ordinary opinion moving up to the moving up to the heights of power of of american society and a second concern among those who are critical of the constitution how is it that we can possibly arrange that more ordinary people might serve in the government you know that you don't have to be you know, you don't have a law. You don't have, to have a law degree. You don't have to be someone of notoriety, like with a reality television show, for instance. That, that, in other words, only in relatively smaller districts is someone likely to be known because they have a good reputation, because they have done certain kinds of things in their communities 
And not because they're superstars, they have a lot of money or they, you know, what, whatever, whatever the reasons that, that make it more likely for people to be elected today. So I, I do say in this chapter that I, I'm not a policy person. I'm not, I'm, you know, these are, these are just ideas, but the, I think part of the impetus for suggesting this is to say, maybe we're really stuck in a rut when we think about how we think about the nature of modern liberal democracy or modern representative democracy. And one way to one way to rethink this is to go back to some of what were once regarded as the really key debates over whether or not this system would function. And if it's not functioning today in part for reasons that people no longer think they are actually, their voices are being heard, that they actually have no say in this government, well, it may not be that we want to expand the House of Representatives, but how do you make it so that they actually, that people are more likely to think that their voices are being heard? And that, you know, that really is the impetus of, of thinking about a proposal like that. An ultimate question. Another big idea is to reform post-secondary education such that absolute enrollment is actually reduced. Explain the case for a more constrained university sector. How would that positively affect culture and politics in America? I think it's quite clear that we are today, and, and here's one one area where I think a kind of more traditional, we could say more liberal conservative myself would, would, would have agreement, which is that a lot of what the universities are doing is producing people who are credentialed without a lot of ability or skills. It's a it's kind of credentialing machine that is significantly subvented by, by the public purse. I mean, so, and, and I know I actually, let me rephrase that. It's subvented by the public, public forms of loans that then redound unfavorably on the students who take out those loans. So we have, you know, now at least a generation, if not more, of students who have taken massive loans on the promise of having the kinds of jobs that would allow them to pay those loans back with ease but which are not finding those kinds of jobs because we are really overproducing the numbers of credentials that can reasonably be thought to, to result in those kinds, that kind of work. And at the same time, we are, we are not producing the kinds of people, the kinds of um, skills uh, that are desperately needed today. And in particular, the trades uh, where we have a you know, real, real deficit of people who are able to do the kinds of work or the aging infrastructures that I think both of our countries, unfortunately, are suffering under, um, that are able to, you know, really just just to keep, you know, keep the country going in many ways. So, why is it that we are directing so much of the public? Let's just say the it's not direct funds, but it's the promise of what of what those funds are supposed to result in, while circumventing the development of a workforce that's more likely to be able to um, do the kinds of work that this country and other countries like this country are going to need in the, in the coming years. So I, I, I think, you know, it's probably, it's against my own interest to make these arguments as somebody who works in a, in an, in a university. But I, th I think it's the case that many institutions are already beginning to retool and they would retool faster if the kind of public commitment were to be sort of you know, were, were itself to change and reflect those realities. My final question is about Canada, though it has a universal dynamic to it. L let me just set it up, okay? Canada, is, as you may know, 
already has a, a highly diverse population and current immigration policy will only supercharge this trend. Our national statistical agency estimates that by the early 2040s, half of the national population will be first or second generation immigrants. The truth is, because immigration is not equally distributed, some places could easily be in the 60 or 70 percent range. In countries and societies marked by growing heterogeneity and diversity, and in turn, a multiplicity of religions and worldviews and competing conceptions of the good life, is there a room for an alternative to liberalism? Or notwithstanding some of the flaws that we've discussed, have we essentially locked ourselves into a liberal future to manage the level of diversity that government policy has essentially wrought? Great question. I don't know if I have a satisfactory answer for it, because it is precisely, you're right, that in many ways it is the consequence of a liberal order to, to seek, in many ways, to foster the increase of diversity. And it's immigration is one of the ways it does this. But that's just one of the ways it does this. It does this also by, you know, fostering and encouraging, as you know, as we were saying before, the a society in which the institutions that you know were in many ways designed to form and foster a certain vision of what human virtue looks like, those are disassembled or reassembled in ways that in which the individual and the individual's views become predominant. And therefore, diversity then becomes again kind of de facto even within the existing population. So there's I, I guess I, I could see two two really possible outcomes. One of them is a kind of peaceful diversity, which is the what we were describing earlier. In other words, that all of these various immigrant communities, and it may not happen in the first generation, it's probably the first, the second or third generation, they do what many immigrant communities have done, which is to basically internalize the liberal mindset. And they become, in other words, they become homogenized. They become homogenized to liberalism. So what appears to be diversity, in fact, is really just a kind of veneer. And really what underlies it is a homogenous view of, you know, a kind of globalized indifferentism of who we are, who you are, what it is we do. And this becomes, of course, it becomes consonant with the market itself. It becomes consonant with the view of ourselves as basically individual sovereign choosers, especially in a kind of marketplace. And that's so you could see a kind of continuation of what we see today. But this is not this is not genuine diversity. What it really is, is a kind of it's a it's a liberal monolith. It's, it's a kind of homogenized liberalism. And then we're back to the problem that I described earlier, which is that it forms people that cannot sustain the liberal order itself that do not have the kinds of characters and the certain kinds of virtues that are able to maintain you know, the minimal form of common good that's necessary for a political society to, to flourish. And so then I think it only exacerbates the problems going forward. That's the, maybe that's the good form of liberalism that might result. And I'm not sure that that's all that good. The other one is what we're seeing, you know, in some of the streets and neighborhoods in Europe, which is the retention of the cultural diversity of different religious, ethnic, national traditions, not acclimating to the liberal order, resisting it. And this is especially going to be religious traditions probably outside of Christianity that have become 
very self-consciously, you know, develop themselves in contrast to the dominant societies. And this, you know, this in this scenario, what you have is an increasingly kind of divided and, and potentially hostile internal set of cultural political dynamics that could go in all kinds of various unpredictable ways, but in which liberal societies will find themselves in this kind of deeply self-conflicted state. On the one hand, committed to not being judgmental about another religious or faith or ethnic or cultural tradition, but faced with a tradition that's deeply antithetical to, to their own. And I think, you know, if you again, if you watch closely what's happening in Europe today, I think you're seeing societies that do not know how to answer this question. Maybe that's the worser case scenario, but I'm not sure it's necessarily even all that better than the better case scenario. Well, one tool to help us answer those questions and more is the book Regime Change Towards a Post-Liberal Future. Patrick Tanine, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.